we often talk about in in the subcontinent including in pakistan that it's a young country there's a demographic dividend or a potential demographic dividend to be had but that relies a lot on investing in human capital and so to talk about investing in human capital and building the skills necessary to take advantage of this workforce i have the honor and pleasure of hosting pramod sinha who is a friend a former colleague and a trailblazer in many fields so we could talk about various issues and take out several hours to touch upon many of them but we're going to focus on education he is the founding dean of the indian school of business which is just got ranked as the best business school in india number 23 in the world so pramod congratulations to you and everyone else who's made that possible he's also one of the founders of ashoka university a liberal arts university in india and most recently has started harappa education which is an a startup offering the foundational skills critical to achieving professional success um for people who are working professionally so pramath a whole host of experiences in the education sector and i want to start this discussion by getting your perspective on first why harappa and what's the thinking behind the startup and why did you think that this was the right time for something uh focused on people in the professional space Uzair, thank you for uh, inviting me. This is actually very special for me as well, given the fact that we have a, a long friendship behind this. Uh, and congratulations on your podcast. To the question of why Harappa, I think there are two parts to it. Uzair, number one, as you mentioned, I've been involved now. I first started working on. ISB about 25 years ago so I've been involved in setting up these institutions uh setting up institutions for almost 25 years now and if you add up the intake of all of these institutions that I've been involved with even if you chose the ones that I didn't directly help found but are am somehow involved with you'll end up with an intake of maybe Four five thousand students a year, and I'm not trying to be modest, but given the numbers in our part of the world, it's not even a drop. I mean, it's a spray. Uh, the the total enrollment uh, almost on a on a annual basis just in India is about ten odd million students, and that's only going to double over a period of time. So my point was that. i was starting to see the futility in some ways of setting up these brick and mortar institutions that benefit a few people uh, and i was wondering how do you scale this and obviously ever since technology arrived uh, i have not gotten into the pros and cons of online learning but literally said hey this is the only way forget cons uh, this is all pro as far as uh, places like india are concerned so one was just the to cut a long story short about how do you create high quality education at scale now the idea of the harappa content came from the fact that as i was starting to think about scale and technology i also was watching what Coursera and edX and many of the players in India who are very famous now for their large valuations were doing 
and I wanted to do something that wasn't competing head to head with them, but not just that. I also wanted to do something that I felt passionately about. And I wanted to take on a, and if I may say somewhat pretentiously, I, uh, at the risk of being pretend, sounding pretentious, uh, something that was a kind of an unsolved problem and a bigger challenge. And the biggest unsolved problem, as you know, that we have, not just in India, but around the world, is that formal education has not solved the problem of employability completely. Uh, we've veered from being not relevant at all to professionals, jobs, and so on, to being completely focused on jobs in, in education to now becoming irrelevant because you're so stuck in the past that the jobs of the future and the fact that uh, the work the, 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 the 21st century requires you to constantly change jobs and change professions, uh, that we've lost this agility that you need people to have if you're going to survive uh, in a world that is changing so fast. And that gap is what I tried, I'm trying to fill through Harappa to say, listen, of course you need the technical skills. And you look at most of online education, it's still building technical skills. The most popular courses these days, for example, are data science uh, related to data science and learning how to do Python programming and digital marketing and, and cloud computing and, 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 and maybe AI and so on. So everybody's still following that same mentality as we did in the brick and mortar world to say we need to build people's technical skills because that's what gets them jobs. And that's fair enough. And you do need that. And I'm not throwing out technical skills. I'm a trained engineer from many years ago. But I think there's an opportunity to build the non-technical, call it the more life skills, the foundational skills, the skills of cognitive, social, and emotional skills that I think are much more relevant and are not being taught. So on one hand, you're filling that gap. And on the other hand, you're trying to do it at scale. And that was the idea of, uh, of, of bringing this together under what uh, I'm calling Harappa. So this, this idea about jobs of the future and the gap, right? That's a, that's a big one. And it, it shows itself up not only in terms of those with the technical skills that enter the workforce and quickly realize that pure technical acumen in most jobs will only get you so far but you need the softer sides of the skill set that, that you're trying to solve for. But also that in a world where so much is going to be disrupted so rapidly, you need to be creative in terms of how you think about the world and problem solve differently. And that is critical to growth. So from in, in a meta uh, you know, sense, like where do you see the opportunity and the need for countries like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and the region to invest in human capital in a way that you know you need to upskill the technical side, but how do, how should people think about what they need to invest in to make sure that the disruptive innovation that is already changing the world, this young population is able to take advantage of that versus just fall behind? 
So uh, I'm not suggesting that uh, I have the answers to the, that, that whole question, but I do think that we have to unshackle for one, our formal education system, because it has become, as you know, much more and more with time. And I, I, I completed my formal education in India uh, well over 35 years ago, but it has become even more about rote learning and entrance tests and marks and exams. And uh, that is really limiting. I mean, all of the research around education, whether it is school education and college education suggests that mm -hmm. the real creativity is unleashed. The real innovation happens when you allow people to choose what they study and what they research and what they work on, as well as get them to work on real problems where they can then play with the problem or wrestle with the problem and learn through the problem and apply and then see their creativity come out. I think we are all creative. As, as a human race, we are creative. That is why we evolved from uh, the home, you know, as a homo sapien race. And so we have natural curiosity, creativity, the tendency to solve problems in all of us. But our formal education system boxes you and therefore, the question is, how do you unbox people? And how do you do that in a way that it, in fact, helps you solve real world problems so that these people can actually go out and create progress uh, for the world to move forward, for our countries and our region to move forward? in its own right you know we are we 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 build and you, you can see a little bit of that happening in the entrepreneurial ecosystem that has been unleashed uh, i have to tell you that growing up in a middle class uh, india in, during my days you know setting up a business or being entrepreneurial was looked down upon today it has become fashionable in less than a lifetime and i think that's you are seeing a bit of the unshackling but that's happening outside of the formal system. I think you could bring that same unshackling into the formal education system. Now, we are emphasizing uh, entrepreneurship and tinkering labs and so on, but that's not enough. I think from a very early age, you have to allow folks to question, to, to, to challenge, to speak up and so on, which then develops these skills that lead to more creative and more innovation. So that I think is one part of the problem is to take the, the formal system and try to, 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 to loosen the shackles and allow people to develop and grow and develop these faculties. But the other big challenge Uzair, is that we are not bringing enough people into the realm of high quality education and forget high quality, just in the realm of education, the, at higher education levels, the gross enrollment ratio in India is about 26%. So one in four 
of the relevant age group is going to college. Uh, it's an abysmally low number for uh, any country. And uh, in our case, that ratio belies the fact that the absolute numbers are massive, right, for every percentage point. So large numbers of people are just getting no exposure to education. And even the 26% who are getting exposure to education are not getting very high quality education. And I think we all recognize that. I think uh, there's widespread recognition now in India for at least a decade now that Yes, we might have we might have expanded access quite substantially, and we continue to do that. But we just haven't been able to raise quality. In fact, we have uh, sacrificed quality in trying to drive access. So much less than much less uh, uh, make them innovative and creative. We are not even providing education to students and equipping them. So I think you have to approach both these. Uh, solve both these problems and do them in a creative manner. If we were to take the creativity point further, the truth is that old models I'm convinced of education will not work to solve these problems at the scale that we have to attempt to solve these problems. Uh, and I think we haven't yet had the courage to really challenge and say, what does the solution to this look like in the future? So for example, if we are talking about learning becoming a lifelong thing, then what is the relevance of an undergraduate or a postgraduate degree? Now we are tinkering with fluidity of credits or creating credits bank, credit banks so that you, know, you can do a few courses here, accumulate and few courses here and accumulate. But if you really extend that argument, but then that credit accumulation should be through your lifetime. And maybe somewhere along the way, if you want to convert X number of credits into a degree or a badge of some sort that, oh, now you're an MBA because you did so many of these credits, uh, that can happen whenever. But the focus is not on the two-year MBA. The focus is that you're constantly learning. And I do think that that's what that is what is required but it's going because we are working back, working forwards from the existing model in an incremental manner. It'll be ages before we get to that point, even though we know that we have to do that. Right. So I think fundamentally looking at the education system as something that there's an opportunity to create something completely afresh, given the challenge as well as the opportunity you have. I mean, 25% of your people are not educated. So, hey, might as well give them something new or different, right? That I think is the opportunity and that's how we have to look at this opportunity. I and think the, conti the continuous learning part is super important. As you were saying that, I was thinking about my own undergrad, which was in economics and finance, but with a minor in computer information systems. I learned JavaScript and CSS and HTML, never used it for a day of my life. But in one of my jobs, I had to teach myself Python to automate certain tasks that were mundane and were not fun at all. So I, it was nothing the work required me to do. I did it on my own, but there was no way for me to capture that as a growth on top of my information systems minor, right? It, 
I know it, I can talk about it. I haven't used that skill in a number of years, but it's not a formal thing that, that the way you described it. Um, and I think that's very important, right? Because the way of in the speed of innovation is that you can learn something today that might be irrelevant four years from now from even a technical perspective, but there are learnings from within that journey that apply to the next phase of that innovation. So how do you empower a worker who's going to get disrupted time and time again in a job is super important. Um, but I think from the perspective of the Indian subcontinent writ large, and it applies to other emerging markets as well, is that, and I wanna get your perspective on this, is you have to create tens of millions of new jobs a year to absorb this labor. And the old ways of doing business, which is mass industrial employment are not going to work because you have robotics coming in, you understand this better than most people. The amount of labor will not be, the China model of employing people and building factories is not going to work for an India or a Pakistan or a Bangladesh anymore. So you need innovation and you need a new way of new economy jobs. How do you, do you see even in India, which is much more mature than I would say of Pakistan, this recognition that the old way of economic growth, human development is not going to be relevant and there's a need for rethinking how we think about human capital and economic opportunity? Listen, I think the powers that be are aware and they are they 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 take it seriously i think somewhere all of us are kind of not acknowledging that we need to worry about it now or do something about it now this is the so called gray rhino effect right that you know it's it's there and you know it's going to hurt you in the future but you're doing nothing about it because you think the person who will come next will have to face the music and you can get by. It's about like the same thing with climate change and sustainability and all of that. So I do think that people get it. People understand. And by the way, we've been somewhat in many of our countries been suffering with that, right? Because there's been jobless growth. You, we never heard that term when we were, at least when I was growing up was there, I never heard that term. But you hear that more and more, even, even in with the United States, right? Sorry to cut yeah. you off, but you yeah, know, no. with the whole Trump phenomenon, we heard U.S. manufacturing, America doesn't make stuff. In fact, if you look at St. Louis Fred data, American manufacturing has skyrocketed since the Great Recession. Um, but the employment hasn't come back because robots have started doing the work that humans used to do. Right. Now, I'm not an economist and I'm not a... I feel my my cognitive capacities in playing this forward are not that great. But somewhere instinctively, I feel that in countries and types of markets and regions like ours, I think for a long time, there are going to be enough, there's going to be enough for people to do on tasks that are not automated or creating economic progress and, 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 and improvement in people's lives, whether it is providing the, the current demographic or population food and 
health services and education services that all of that is not getting automated and therefore there is still room for us to provide many many more jobs uh, to people just serving the current population that we have and improving their lot and unleashing the same kind of economic progress that the rest of the world has seen over the last century that's a simple minded way that i think about it because i look mm -hmm. around and i see the tremendous opportunity we have of you know there are people who want to upgrade their lives they just need to be given the tools and the and and the support to do that and that will drive a certain growth that will generate jobs or generate and if not generate jobs at least there will be economic prosperity that will spread maybe people will not sit at home doing nothing and fiddling around doing stuff on their computers and not everybody will have to work some but at least there will be a level of prosperity that will come about uh, as a result of people being more productive i think we are losing the the opportunity to make our folks more productive even for our ecosystem and that's the tragic part i still see enough headroom for growth in the near term before we hit the limits of what you're talking about and at least we should make an attempt to go for that rather than being resigned to the fact that you know nothing's going to happen because the robots are coming yeah, and i think it's it's again one of those things right that i was reading about how in the early 60s, 70s, a lot of jobs in the telecom sector for women were the teleconnector, right? The woman who would sit and connect you to the different lines. Yes. But then that got automated. But it wasn't that there was mass unemployment for yeah. women. It was the scaling happened and there were new opportunities created. So new things will obviously emerge. Um, and again, it goes back to the skilling part that continuous learning is important. You need to make yes. sure that your labor force yes. relearns and learns again. Um, I also how have do you... a lot of... Go ahead. I also have a lot of fact. I have I have a lot of faith in the spirit of just the human endeavor, right? Uh, I think every generation has felt that the next generation will not have nothing, will not have much to do. But then we 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 progress and we advance and we find new things to do and uh, I'm, I'm who knows what will be the next big frontier that we as a race will work on so go ahead i just wanted to express no that. no that's a very important point like human human ingenuity is, is is supremely interesting right especially in times of crisis we just come up with new things as mechanisms to survive and push the world forward i want to go back to harappa and and sort of the the methodology in terms of the gap you're trying to fill like how do you approach this from a from a curriculum perspective i read a bit about it on your website as well it was interesting in terms of practicing some of the skills and learning about you know engaging with people and having these skills like what's the core methodology in terms of someone taking these classes and and trying to learn with harappa so i'm conscious that i'm talking too much and i'm this is again one of those things that I could end up talking a lot about. So you should stop me. Uzair, um, this is stuff that has come out from a lifetime of work in education, but also in my own experiences, having gone from being a 
nerdy engineering academic to being a management consultant to running a company to becoming an entrepreneur to setting up these education programs i think you're the you're the only person in the world i know who has a phd in robotics set up an indian school of business then set up a liberal arts university and now is doing harappa which is edtech looking at the future of jobs which is a fascinating journey in and of itself and i think there are, that's the whole point uh, was there i look at my own journey and i look at a journey the journey of many people i know and the journey you are on and my big realization is that somewhere it's possible for anyone to do anything now obviously i don't mean this in a cute way i don't think if i may you and i are ever going to play cricket for our countries right you think i can't start ipl or have a an ipl contract might be hard pakistan super you, league contract and then you, nba you you could you could start a league that i think you can do and i wouldn't put it past you and that again supports my point that you can do anything but i doubt if you will actually go play at at this stage and you know this not to be not to trivialize it but you know there are some limits to what we can do but if you were to kind of prescribe those limits then within that there's a there's an astounding number of things that we can do like who would have thought that i would be sitting here and you would be interested introducing me as a guy who's setting up educational institutions right there wasn't there's no job description or profession like that now if you then examine that thought that anybody can do anything or that people can go from doing something to doing something completely different that they couldn't imagine what is it that allows them or enables them or gives them the wherewithal to do that and that's something that i've been thinking about for a long time so that's where harappa comes from and there at least the way i think about it is that the one thing that i thought makes people capable of doing that is that regardless of what problem you are asked to solve even if you didn't have any prior knowledge training or experience what do you need to be able to solve that problem because ultimately at the workplace or ultimately in any professional journey or career what people are really expecting from you is the ability for you to get things done and they want to do it with you hustling them very little they want to be able to say hey can you just start a podcast for us we don't know what really we know to do but you know what we do as an organization everybody is doing podcasts so why don't you go start a podcast now you can't turn around and say well tell me how to do a podcast or what do you want want me to do a or tell me more people today expect hey i've told you to go do a podcast you broadly know what i do and so just go make it and and bring in, in it in the job description the, in the job description the bullet point is need a go getter right that's right. what you're describing exactly and so the the question is if you take that as a go getter 
what do what does a go getter bring and that then gets down to what we are trying to do at harappa so i have come to the conclusion in my life that the go getter needs to kind of broadly do five things or have five what i call habits uh, and these are things that you develop in in over a period of time which you kind of do instinctively without realizing that you're doing it because there has become really an automatic response it's part of your judgment your decision making and how you interact with people so the first thing is how you think about information or tasks that are presented to you and so how you shape your thinking and people have talked about mental models we talked about creativity uh, people have talked about learning how to learn which we talked about earlier which is the 21st century so all of this falls in the bucket of how do you think the unique thing we which i have introduced or we have introduced in that is how you think about people is not something that people talk about so right now as your audience is listening to me they are saying who is this guy and is he believable is this kind of real what is he talking about is he making sense should i listen or dismiss him as a flaky guy or he's got something going on here right so you spend a lot of your time thinking about people but nobody teaches you how to judge people or think about people so i think that think part is a very big part of i think what we need to develop throughout our lifetime the second is then applying that thinking to solve problems right but problem solving when i learned it at mckinsey was much more about you know how do you define a problem structure a problem synthesize a solution and so on but in real life it's also about hey there are multiple solutions to a problem and so the question becomes which of those do you actually implement so that decision making becomes very important judgment becomes very important uh, and execution becomes very important and nobody teaches you that so that's and it one ties, it ties back to the first point right that you're talking about how do you think about people because the person you're proposing the solution to their understanding or analysis of what you're proposing and their acceptance of that will is critical but a lot of times when we make strategy solutions that's not even part of the picture and so yes. if the person making those decisions implementing them doesn't really believe in them it's a failure you can be the best solution in the world but it'll fail and we face that as consultants all the time right we think we've come up with this brilliant answer because we did all this brilliant analysis and information gathering uh, but the truth is that the other person just doesn't buy in and so it's all wasted the th so this is the what i bucket under cognitive skills right and i'll tell you i've broken it down further but think of those as the two important skills which are associated with cognition thinking problem solving the social skills are much more about how do you engage with the world and this is a not deeply insightful but as you know we you have to admit that in most profession in almost all professions you can't work in isolation anymore right even if you are an individual contributor to your point you have to convince other people you have to engage with other people if you are a researcher you have to raise funding and so on so then you need to learn how to communicate and i think communication is a big pain point everywhere around the world so i think that 
constantly needs to be honed and communication is about listening and perceiving and interpreting, but also speaking, talking and, and having presence, right? Uh, sometimes people don't may, may not speak the right language, but they are able to carry themselves in a, in a way that is inspirational and so on. And then associated with that is the point which is beyond communication, how do you also work well with others? I have found in life that as you grow more and more senior, the amount of emotional, mental, and physical energy that is spent on getting two people to see eye to eye and not get offended by the behavior of somebody else or why somebody didn't do something that they thought was right or talked to somebody in some ways that they thought was offensive. You know, you deal with this all the time at work and all your time goes in getting people to talk and collaborate. So I think the collaborate piece is also very important. So the communicate and collaborate are my other two big factors or habits I think that are important. And then finally, to your point as being a go-getter, I don't think you can be a go-getter unless you are constantly changing yourself. Because if you, if you are a go-getter on a task that I give you today and you do a great job of it, I'm going to up the game on you, right? So when you come back having done the task, I'm going to make you go to the next better, higher, more complex challenge. And you won't be able to do that unless you recognize that, hey, to do that, I now need to get better on multiple stuff, things. So you're constantly building your self-awareness about what kind of a person are you? What are your strengths, weaknesses? And you're constantly kind of adopting what is now called the growth mindset. You are constantly collecting feedback, working on yourself. And you are at the same time also trying to constantly examine your purpose and meaning and what do you like to do, not like to do, and all of this stuff. So that's the kind of fifth area. And so where we ended up was to say, listen, if you are going to be, and I'm calling it the go-getter or using your expression, or if you are the anyone can do anything kind of guy or gal, then you need to have strong skills in these five areas, how to think, how to problem solve, how to communicate, how to collaborate, and how to lead as in lead yourself. And that's really the theory of change that we have at Harappa. Now, how did we convert that into courses? A whole different story. And very quickly, we took each of these areas and we broke it down more bottom up to say, okay, so on collaboration, what are the kinds of behaviors? Tell me, Uzair, right? We went to people like you and thought about it ourselves. Tell me, what are the key behaviors at, at the sort of level of a Lego block that you want to see from somebody that is collaborative. And for each of those pieces of Lego blocks, which we call learning outcomes, we, we, we said that's what we want people to learn. And then how do we teach it to them? That's how we created the curriculum. So we have a 150 Lego blocks which are really the behaviors that we want you to demonstrate and exhibit at the workplace. 
for which we've created the content, which is our courses. Now you don't see all this detail because as a consumer, I want to make it much easier for you. You know, when you eat something, you're not looking at the ingredients of it, but that's the science behind what we've done. This is super fascinating. And as you were explaining that, I was like, you know, a lot of particularly Desi parents try to say game video games are terrible. I think video games are a great tool for learning all of the stuff you mentioned, because essentially there are 150 blocks and you get certain skills as you move along the way that, that have to be taken up. And I was thinking about this video game I'm actually playing these days that I get to a certain level and then I have to go find five other skills through missions that yeah. give my yeah. character that and then I'm able to finish the final mission and so on and so forth. So it's very similar to that. My question on that is, so you have these blocks that you're teaching people. How do you then measure whether they've actually internalized the lessons that are being taught to them? Like what is you know, it's online. So I'm just curious, like what, how does this work in terms of knowing that Uzair's taken 85 of these lessons and he's, he's, you know, good for them. So what we do Uzair is that uh, we obviously run assessments and uh, we collect feedback both from you. And more importantly, now we have started to develop a tool where we collect feedback from your coworkers to see whether Uzair has started to speak better or not. And has his, is he adding more value at work? Has he become more of a go-getter? Has his confidence gone up? But more specifically, what we do, Uzair, is that before you take our course, we give you a pre-course assessment. Now, granted, this is a self-assessment, but in this, these kind of skills, uh, you can't cheat. Uh, so we do a self-assessment. We And in the self-assessment, we ask you to respond to uh, situations. So it's a little bit like the GRE, GMAT tests, which are kind of the, the, the that, that test your thinking, right? You present a situation and they kind of make you think through and, and the options are somewhat confusing. So you really have to apply your mind, right? So that assessment methodology and science is already there. And we have all these 150 Lego blocks, right? So for each Lego block, we create a pre-assessment and then we create a post-assessment. So I can see whether you improved between the first when you came in and now that you are done. Now you'll then turn around and say, well, that doesn't, I know about this stuff, but that doesn't mean I'm applying it. And fair enough. So then what we said is that's not enough. What we also do is then do, and, and however, the, the second time we do the assessment, we also measure what is your level of confidence in yourself? And how comfortable are you to say that, hey, I'm going to start using this and applying this. And, 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 and so we start to get some sense of, are you motivated to use this or not? Right. But that still doesn't prove anything to your point. Till we then say, hey, if you really want me to prove to you 
then the only way to do that is to ask your coworkers and we can do a 180 degree or a 360 survey for you on has there really been improvement but what we also do is post this course being over we start giving you tasks to do which we call habit drills so we say hey was there did you have you used this concept recently, right? Remember you did this in your course at Harappa and have you tried this out or here's something to test. Here's a new article on this subject. So we keep you engaged and then we have the ability to have another test six months out, three months out, six months out, whatever you choose. Now, as you can tell, we are trying multiple different ways. This is a truly unsolved problem, Jose. Because even in your, in our formal education, the, the end-term exam doesn't prove anything, right? Like you were saying, you, you learned uh, a language when you were studying, but you had to relearn the Python when, it, when you got it and that earlier language became irrelevant. You didn't even apply it. So how do you ensure that these things don't become irrelevant is really the big issue. And so we are trying to find ways of ensuring that the learning happens and that you can actually prove that the learning has happened. And genuinely, nobody has really done this before. In fact, in all of formal education or in, especially in executive education, professional education, this has been the big demand, you know, B schools and I've been associated with them, uh, make you go through very expensive executive education programs, but with no assurance of outcome. In fact, most people argue that these are kind of boondoggle trips to, to expensive, you know, you're at Harvard and you get, bring your certification back. Did you really learn supply chain economics or did you really learn uh, how to do strategy by going through a one week training program with some famous professors? It's not proven. So I think we are trying to do the opposite and say, no, we'll prove it. In fact, the onus is on us to prove that. But I would say that we are in the early stages of figuring out what it will take to prove that. And it's too early in our journey to say, no, we've proven that. However, the anecdotal evidence is very interesting, very interesting. And I can talk some more about that later, but uh, I, I would say that it is possible to measure. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna hear some stories, but before I do that, one thing, you know, on the feedback from colleagues side and sort of assessing three months out, six months out, a year out, one thing that also frequently changes, um, I'm just talking in terms of just the consulting industry alone, but it happens across the board, is that as you progress through your, your career, the roles you're working on change. And so in one role, you may be a business technology analyst and looking at technology and, and problem solving in terms of networks, for example, and then the project changes and now you're a consultant manager who now has to do a lot of strategic thinking. So are you also then mapping what blocks are needed for which types of roles to make sure that, hey, I know you're weak on these 50, but given where you are in your journey, you need to invest in these 15 for now. Yes, Suzer. So what we have now started doing, and I don't know if you saw that in your consulting firms, but consulting firms do a great job of this. And we are doing that now is also that we have a boot camp for new hires, which is our base level program. And then we have 
a first time managers program mm -hmm. and then we have a high potential leaders program and then we have the senior leaders program and then at the other end further down we have a placement readiness program and a career readiness program that we are doing on campuses so our thesis is that these skills really help you go up the ladder right and that there are different rungs for which we've created these programs now you can obviously do programs in between these so-called career cusps but that is exactly the idea is that now that i've got my basic content and the curriculum that i stand for i can now feed it into each of these career cusps at least to the extent that they can be mapped and i'm also feeding them into some common popular roles and jds in organizations so for example we've created a sales excellence program because as a salesperson there's not much technical skill that you need right but there's a lot of skills around strategic thinking what competition is doing as well as uh, you know responding to real situations dealing with difficult uh, clients and 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 you know being tenacious dealing with failure all of those things go into a sales excellence program. and i think on the sales program like to your point about you can learn anything i am an example of that i started deloitte I, we did the myers briggs assessment when yes. i started there i was an introvert which meant that being a consultant as an introvert is a terrible terrible idea and i was concerned and my hr lady was like no 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 we have training for that we'll tell you how to engage with people communicate with them talk to people as an analyst as an entry level analyst and 2 years later when i did after getting promoted did my second myers briggs my introvert score had shifted phenomenally and that goes to your point about you can't cheat these assessments because it comes out regardless but yes you can train people for these things and these roles and i had the same thing i i i i'm actually if you look at me my my intrinsic motive intrinsic orientation on the myers briggs by the way which has been discredited badly now but for whatever it was worth i think i still think it was useful as old dinosaurs I, found it useful <laughs> right right so it i i'm an infp right but i think the mckinsey training made me a enfj right so i retained my nf but i had to become more extroverted and i had to become more of a j which was a you know button down very planned guy that doesn't mean that i'm actually still not very introverted and i'm still not uh, completely unplanned i'd prefer being that way but at the workplace you had to adjust yourself and that's exactly what harappa is about right that uh you kind of have to unlearn certain things uh relearn certain things and constantly keep unlearning and relearning uh, one of our uh, uh one of our uh, advisors is part of the graduate school of education at harvard uh, chris dede uh he also talks about the idea of a 60 year old curriculum 60 year curriculum right so people are nowadays talking about the fact that your curriculum is a 60 year curriculum not a 4 year 2 year 6 year curriculum but he talks about the fact that you know there is not enough research and thinking around how do you unlearn 
Because one of the biggest problems is that you pick up bad habits, right? Or even what was a good habit before, to your point, as your career changes, you have to unlearn some of what was good in the earlier stage of your career and relearn something that is completely new. So how do you constantly unlearn and get rid of stuff that you are comfortable with is also not something easy to do. So those are some of the nuances that we are discovering as we are getting into this. And then to try and do it at scale and to do it remotely, uh, I find it a fascinating challenge. Oh, it is. And I'm excited about all the learnings that come out of this because it is a mass experiment in a way at a very high level in terms of skills development. And if you do it right at the scale that you're intending to do it, it's transformational. And I know you were humbly initially saying that the 4,000, 5,000 intake from ISB, Ashoka, et cetera, is a spray. But I think in the grand scheme of things, the impact of those graduates is huge. So yeah, I think you were being humble there. I think the impact is phenomenal in terms of value creation, innovation, and moving the country forward. Um, what's been the anecdotal feedback? I know it's still early days, but what are some of the exciting things that you've heard along the way that say, you know what, you're on the right track and this truly can be as transformational as you would like it to be. Yeah. So was there one of the, as a business person, you know, the biggest thing for me is that people are buying. And uh, the biggest thing for me also is that there's a lot of repeat buying and upselling that is happening. Uh, on the, so one of the things that I didn't mention is that while that's not part of the assessment question that you asked, we do take a feedback on whether people liked the course, the content, the delivery, and on a scale, and this is like the typical student feedback on, on the class, right? You must be doing that when you remember from your classes. There we've got an average, phenomenal average of four and a half on five, right? So we, we ask people to rate us on one to five. And uh, again, not to boast, but consistently our courses have been rate, rated on average about five. And at this point in time, roughly 60, 70,000 units of our courses have been paid for and completed. Right? Wow. So it's at the rating is at phenomenal scale. Yes. So that I can say safely that we are doing something right from a People feeling good about what they're taking still doesn't answer the question that you said. And did they really learn? Are they going to apply it and so on? But I'll give you the example of this young woman who sent us a, a short video. And, and this captures exactly uh, what you are asking. Now, uh, she's a computer science student at a, in a situated in a remote university in what would best be described as a third tier town, right? Uh, in fact, this is the only university there for miles. And uh, now she doesn't speak English very well and uh, is clearly small town, rural girl, smart, studying computer science. Now, one of the things we teach in our speaking course is that, listen, you may not know English and that's okay. Because, you know, Uzair, you and I have met people from all over the world. They don't speak perfect English, but they are extremely articulate and very clear and uh, very uh, 
inspiring in, 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 in communicating and, and, and engaging and problem solving and doing all of those things. So we don't want I just got to a, so on that note, I yeah. got a meme this morning about uh, a celebrity who was basically the, the caption said, uh, you don't know what it's like to translate every single word in my head before I say it. And I actually sound very smart in Spanish being, yeah. you know, it was like, <laughs> exactly. Well said. So this, this woman took our course and one of the, so when, remember I was describing you the Lego blocks and the outcomes. So one of the Lego block outcomes that we do is, is to say that, Hey, to really engage people, the one big skill or, or, or learning that we found is Aristotle's appeals, which he talked about 3000 years ago. But the fact is that, you know, I did not know about Aristotle appeal, Aristotle's appeals till say, you know, somewhere during the Ashoka period, which is my, my involvement in Ashoka and liberal arts. And most liberal arts students have not heard of this, right? But 3000 years ago, Aristotle taught people that there are three elements in any conversation that really make it engaging. Logos, ethos, and pathos. In fact, in the story I'm telling you right now, there's logos, ethos, pathos. And that's why you're kind of waiting to see what I'm coming up with and so on, right? I'm talking about this girl who doesn't speak English in a small town, right? Logos is logic, which we use a lot. We all do. People like you and I particularly do that. You know, we convince people with sound, logic, reason, evidence, facts. It all needs to come together. It can't be logical gaps. Ethos is your credibility. So if this is like, you know, I've done education all my life, 25 years, been involved with ISB. So you are then saying, okay, this, this guy is saying something. It must be, it must be meaning something. And pathos, pathos is about showing emotion and connecting and, you know, empathy and, 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 and just the feeling. Now, she said, so I've, I've discovered the magic of logos, ethos, bathos. And let me tell you how I use it. So, you know, my dad, if you ever want something to him, you have to be very logical because if he wants to say no, nothing will work with him. So with him, I know I have to use logos. And oh, with my mom, bathos works beautifully. Now, suddenly you see that we didn't tell her that. We didn't teach her that. And maybe she cheated and read about it somewhere. I don't know. But if you hear her talk, she's got it. She's got it that, you know, I can use these tools. Now imagine a 20 year old learning this. Do you think her communication and her impact is going to improve? It already has in the way she talks about it on the camera. So I think that's one thing I'll tell you. The other thing I'll tell you is we are doing, a, do, doing a, our Harappa courses for uh, a very large public sector in India. And I've actually, I actually know this uh, company very well uh, for other reasons. I work with them and so on. So I was a bit skeptical that, you know, these are hardened managers who are in their sort of 40s and 50s. And we've had phenomenal results there, right? In fact, our completion rates have been almost 
because people are saying my god we didn't know such things existed nobody told us that is amazing. so long since we learned something like this right and then they say that humne to sab ek hi din mein sab kuch kar liya i sat for one day <laughs> and i finished everything right i Been, couldn't binge watching her up courses yeah, literally so they are, literally i just exactly thought that that you know and these are very simple minded people i don't think they they would feel guilty binge watching a netflix show but they don't feel guilty binge watching a harappa course because they are learning and they're saying that you know why why would why did somebody not teach me how to give and receive feedback when i was young you need that stuff when you're in your 20s in your first job where you need to learn that hey if somebody gives you feedback it's a gift if you made a mistake uh it's a learning opportunity right instead of me feeling guilty and you know feeling insecure and defensive and having an imposter syndrome and being low in confidence if only i knew this i would have looked at the whole world very differently i actually met with uh, uh, one of my 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 colleagues in the us who's become the dean of this big school uh, at an ivy league university and he was saying like said what are you doing and he was like there is a certain disdain sometimes the true blue academics have for what i'm doing right they they are skeptical about online and then you're teaching people this floozy stuff what is this really so i actually played that module on giving and receiving feedback to him and this was over dinner right so and on my mobile app and then he started saying my god this is so helpful because i i really struggle about giving feedback to my uh faculty colleagues <laughs> and this makes it easier this is like an engineering model so that's the point right and that's the anecdotal evidence i can tell you example after example the one last thing i will say and again this will seem like i'm boasting i'm i'm not i'm actually actually trying to tell you what the potential of this is for many other people to feel the confidence because you know there are so many detractors of online you know everybody says people don't complete online courses i'm not kidding you in our corporate and institutional segment not the consumer one where we just sell it online and anybody can buy and so on there the completion rates are relatively lower but in the corporate segment where your corporation or your institution is buying and asking you to take these courses a completion rates of fully completing the course are over is over 80% wow it's i'm shocked because one of the big things people told me is who studies online and why would they complete online and again the reason is not because it's just happening it's if we have made the effort also but the thing is you can make the effort to make it better and it's a little bit like what's happened with netflix and and amazon i don't want to compare because binge watching a entertainment show is not the same as learning online but at the same time it's a little bit like you know if if you if you compared our old fuddy duddy public broadcasters or even the first batch of uh tv channels in entertainment that came to what is available today there's a, a difference of night and day right and i think that's what's happening to online engagement and online quality as well and that's just going to keep growing in leaps and bounds some of the stuff that people are doing online is fascinating i'm actually taking courses online now in philosophy and psychology and subjects that i never got a chance to study 
and i can tell you they are amazing in terms of quality and engagement of course you have to be self motivated to do that no i think it's changed a lot right like in grad school i remember we were taking a security studies class studying world war 2 and more than read the books and the readings um i listened to a podcast it's called hardcore history um phenomenal storytelling i learned so much more about the war than i did from the books because it was engaging content and similarly you know i'm not going to watch sanjeev kapoor make indian food because it's it's you know it's not my generation's thing but i will go on youtube and watch five videos of how to make some sort of nihari or haleem or whatever because it's entertaining and i get to learn right so it is it's changed because of that and you know just to extend that also uh, there i come from a family where my father and my grandfather were all hindi writers and my father and grandfather started a hindi magazine 70 years ago which i've been publishing in the print model just using the pandemic uh, i started this exactly this kind of conversation between one of our writers and an anchor and we do this every sunday just after about 10 or so episodes if you actually just look at the live viewership and the recorded post event viewership we've just cost 100000 views on on these videos now i always had this thesis but i hadn't really run because people are not reading hindi very much anymore and i'm not sure that probably is true for urdu as well but they love listening to it and so we are now doing a radio show which is like a podcast just the audio podcast and again that's very popular because people just love listening and learning that way so what's also happened is that i'm giving that as an example but like you were saying learning can now happen in so many modes so on our courses we have voice overs so if you don't want to watch and there's a, there is some criticism there are some people who say we are just tired of watching videos right you you don't have to watch the video you can just listen and there's a lot you can pick up by not having to visually see but just listening uh so i think there's multiple modes where you can cater to the learner and of course there's all kinds of other conveniences about timing and form and so on so now we'll get into some of the generic stuff about online so i'll stay away from that but i it is very exciting what you can do and i think if again i'll conclude with this and ask you the final question but if the journey is going to be continuous throughout your life then the modes of delivery have to not only evolve but have to be varied right because someone who's getting on a plane for an 18 hour flight may want to just listen to the class someone may want to download it someone consumes it differently so i think yeah. if you're going to do it at scale the the way of intaking that information has to be diverse as well because people's preferences will be diverse um before i let you go a this has been fascinating i've learned a lot and i think um what you're doing is phenomenal so you scale it up you solve this problem i think it's going to have a transformative impact not only on india but i think around the world um and i know you're an avid reader so i wanted to let you go by asking you what are two or three books that you've read either recently or in the past that have deeply influenced you that you recommend people pick up and read this can be any book any book any topic so 
the first book that I was very influenced by was uh, Mahatma Gandhi's uh, The Story of My Experiments with Truth. I was very young then. I was still in college. And I have to say that I did not quite get a lot of the things in the book because, but it was also very written in a bit of a storytelling fashion. And I was very impressed with the man and his values and his grit and his commitment. And I remember also being struck by the fact that there were many things about him that I did not approve of. And it was my young mind and my naive mind. And later on in life, I've also realized that, hey, even the best leaders have faults and it's okay. Uh, it doesn't make them any less of a leader. But I do remember being very influenced by that book. Uh, and I can say that despite a lot of criticism of Gandhi by some people and so on, I still remain a big admirer after having read that book. The second book that strikes me uh, to mention, because I think it was a book that beautifully captures the time we live in. And it was the start, I guess, of this very highly globalized world was this book written by a Sri Lankan writer called Michael Ondanche, uh, uh, which was called The English Patient. And it was set in the backdrop of World War II. And I don't want to give it away. It was also made into a, a famous movie. But I think what has always fascinated me is how people from very different parts of the world, backgrounds, and so on come together. Uh, and their lives mm -hmm. get intertwined. And yet we keep talking about all these differences between us, right? And uh, there was this Indian guy who's fighting on behalf of the British and he falls in love with this French woman in Italy or Italian woman, I don't remember. And, uh, and, 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 you know, there's just so many different facets and so on uh, to it. There's a German chap who gets mistaken to be a, uh, an Englishman and that's how he's saved. It's, it's very complicated, the story, but it's fascinating in terms of the lessons it has for boundaries and countries and backgrounds. And, and it's, it's a great theme for the subcontinent and what your country and my country have, or our countries have gone through. So I do, I do remember being very, and I think that is so much more true today because that, that has become a commonplace thing today, right? And I think um, globalization yeah. has brought us all together in that sense that, you know, even the old barriers because of information flows being democratized just no longer exist. Like you were saying, you were on a clubhouse thing, listening to Bengali, Indian and Pakistani music. That's the innovation has made that possible. That, that, that barrier no longer exists anymore. Yeah. And, you know, today I was listening to Zeb Bangash, who I heard on Coke Studio, and I don't really know where she's from. Maybe she is from Pakistan and probably is, but I don't know where she's from, where she lives, how she's singing, what, you know, her background is, but I just enjoy her music. Uh, a third book that uh, you want... Uh, 
need to talk about. I think the third book, is it okay to talk about a very personal story? Uh, my, yeah, my grandfather, my grandfather uh, is one of the people who is reputed to have written the first ever story or, or short novel in Hindi. Uh, see, Hindi became a formal language in the early 1900s. Till then, it was the subcontinent really had Persian and Urdu and Braj Bhasha and Khadi Boli and so on. And Khadi Boli became Hindi. So there's a lot of discussion about who was the first ever Hindi writer, right? Uh, and he wrote a short story that he became very famous for while he was still in college. It's called Kano Me Kangana. So you know what a kangan is, right? The bangles on the wrist. And this is a short story about a little girl who's not a little girl, but a, a girl in a who 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 is very innocent in the forest, who's presented with a pair of bangles, and she doesn't know what to do with it because she's never had these, and she starts to put them on her ear, and then the story goes from there. Uh, and I've been very struck by that story when I first read it because uh, there was this notion of, and, and it's a very feminist story. And uh, this would be written in the 1910s, right? So the second decade of the 20th century uh, in the interiors of Bihar, uh, which if you were to read today, would seem like an extremely uh, empowering story about uh, a woman who came from the forest uh, effectively. And so I think that had a pretty, I, I couldn't imagine, I still can't imagine how he would have written that story uh, at, at a time like that, right? I mean, I can, but, and I, not to discredit him, but it's remarkable that some of these sense of fairness, equity uh, has been always there in, I think, human beings. I think we've kind of just distorted it uh, over time. I'm not a bit of, I'm not a big business book reader. So that's why I'm not giving you the typical, but I do know that there were many books that I read in preparation for my McKinsey interview and so on. Uh, but those are the three books that came to mind since you asked. No, these are fantastic recommendations. And I think the, the story of the girl who puts bangles in her ears, I think sums up this conversation as well, because if you allow young people to be creative and innovative and not be boxed in that the bangle must be born on the wrist and not the ears you lose a lot of you know creativity and the world is a is a poorer place as a result of that loss so and the story I, was really about that loss of innocence yeah you know uh, that 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 story captured so I think it's a, it's it sums up our conversation as well and thank you for these recommendations um and Amazing work. Thank you for sharing us your journey and all the work that you're doing with Harappa and beyond. So wish you all the best. I think as this experiment unfolds and you have more data, we'd love to have you on again to see, you know, how how has that spray now converted into something at scale that that is the goal. So thank you, Pramod, for joining us and, and hope you have the rest, a good rest of the evening. Thank you, Ozer. The one thing that you didn't realize or didn't bring up is that Harappa is now in Pakistan. Yes. And so we ha you have to help me take our courses into Pakistan. That, 
That is a goal. We should do that. And I think that's, again, another interesting part of the journey, right? The namings have changed in terms of you start with Indian School of Business, Ashoka, Harapazi, become more liberal arts in that sense as well, which I think is great because we need to own our own heritage and go back to the time when the subcontinent was the learning and economic heart of the world. And I think it, it was done in the in past fact, and can be done like again. The area, if you really study what they were teaching and doing at Takshila, which was right around that region, it was amazing. People were coming from all over the world and students had a choice. They could study all combinations of subjects from astronomy to medicine, to uh, languages, to religion, to Buddhism. And by the way, this is all documented. So this is not some imagination of mine. I've, I've studied and read it about, but that's for another podcast. Yeah. Thank you so it's much. It's not fake news. Thank you. Thank you, Pramath. We'll chat again soon. Take care. Bye.